Let's now start for the next section, Genesis 12, 10 to 20. Genesis 12, 10. The Egyptian sojourn, Abraham's sojourn in the land of Egypt. 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys, and male and female servants, and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Verse 10 begins by saying that there was a famine in the land, and it was a severe famine. Not a regular famine, but a very severe famine that was in the land. The land that he was to inherit, the land that was the land of his sojournings, is now a place of trouble, problems. That's because this land is a very rocky and dry, arid area, and it is dependent heavily upon rain. That's unlike the land of Mesopotamia or southern Mesopotamia where Abraham was from. It was more green and lush and fertile, especially because of the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, especially for those who lived near those rivers. But in this case, there is the river Jordan and there is the Mediterranean Sea to the west, Jordan on the east of Canaan and the Mediterranean Sea on the, the west. But between those two places, bodies of water, we have... Uh, an arid climate, and it's dependent on rain. So why would God withhold rain? I submit that it was withheld because it was God chastising and punishing the Canaanites, and when he did that because of their sin, it not only was a punishment on the Canaanites, but it's an affliction on the righteous Abraham. This is often the way it happens in Scripture. When God brings something that's unpleasant, uncomfortable, a hardship, it, it is a, a hardship is a punishment on the wicked to wake them up or to show that they are wicked if they persist in their wickedness. But then this hardship is an affliction and a test for the righteous. This is the way it happens in Scripture. Firstly, that the famine was because of their wickedness. Look at 13.13. Remember we saw the verse that said, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Here's a connection to sin and famine. I think right here we have another example we may see in Deuteronomy chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 16. 11, 16, and 17. 
Beware, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit. And you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. This is a warning to Israel, but it also applies to other nations too, like the Canaanites, that when sin persists, God sends afflictions such as famines to punish them for their sin. And often is the case, whenever there is trouble, whenever there is problems, it not only is against the wicked, but it harms the righteous, or it causes the righteous to have to take steps to protect themselves. This happened, for example, in the book of Exodus. Remember the plagues God inflicted on Egypt? Especially the first few plagues, they also afflicted Israel, living in the land of Goshen. Then after the first few, God isolated Goshen and just afflicted the rest of the land of Egypt. And the people of Israel were under the same kind of affliction from those plagues. Initially they were. So this is what's happening here. And Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. He went, goes to Egypt. He was living in the southern part of Canaan, in the Negev, and then he goes uh, a distance southwest of uh, where he was to Egypt. Now, in Egypt, the northern part of Egypt was a fertile green area. This is where the Nile uh, empties out into the delta and, and then goes into the Mediterranean Sea. That's uh, the land of Goshen, for example, that later Israel went to inhabit. That's where they inhabited that area in the Nile of Egypt. This is where Abraham, he goes into this land, and we don't know exactly which city where he went, but he goes into the land of Egypt where they had the Nile to help them survive. So, notice verse 10, he went there temporarily. It says he went there to sojourn. He did not go there because he gave up on the promises of God. He did not go there because he lacked faith. He went there because he and his people were in a desperate situation. Not only the people, but also the animals. He had much cattle that went with him here and there, and he needed to find grazing grass for the cattle. And if there's a famine, then they don't have it. And there would be a great uh, uh, plague and disaster among not only the people, but also all the animals. So he had to go, but he went not because he lacked faith, but because he had faith, and he sought for means to carry out his faith. See that? Because God said, I'll give you the land of Canaan, did not mean that he could sit in his tent and twiddle his thumbs and let everything go on all around him. No. When there was a problem, he needed to act on that problem and do what was necessary to preserve his life and the lives of the people and the animals all together. Yet, when he went to Egypt, he didn't go to stay, he went to sojourn, to live there temporarily. Now, this reminds us of what it says in Hebrews 11. What we'll see in Hebrews 11 about Abraham is true of Abraham more than once in his life, and also it's true of other patriarchs. Hebrews 11, verse 9. 
11.9 By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. What is that country of their own? The heavenly country. He just mentioned it. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. When the famine occurred in Canaan, he did not go back to Haran, and he did not go back to Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia, southern Mesopotamia. He did not go to any of those places because he was not <coughs> like Lot's wife. Remember Genesis 19, 26? Lot's wife was initially delivered out of Sodom, but because she looked back, because she wanted to go back, she didn't have faith, she became a pillar of salt. That, that's not what Abraham did. He did not want to go back to Haran because he gave up. He did not want to go back to Ur because he gave up. He just went to Egypt temporarily so he could return back to Canaan. Verse 11, Genesis 12, 11. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. We might wonder, we know that the age of Sarah was 10 years younger than Abraham. Abraham was 75 at this point, or shortly after. At some point after he arrived in Canaan, this happened. So he was at least 75 years old, and his wife was 10 years younger than he. She was 65. So how could she be beautiful at age 65, is the question. She lived to be 123, as it says in Genesis chapter 23, when she died, she lived to be 123. So how could she be beautiful at age 65? Well, a, f a few explanations for this, a few reasons why this might be the case. One, we do know that the longevity of the patriarchs and matriarchs was longer than ours, no doubt. right? He lived to be 175, she lived to be 123. So it's likely that in some ways, their age would show less sure. sooner than it does, um, longer it, it would take than it does with us. It takes sooner with us. That's one. Number two, she did not have any children. And it, as is often is the case, the more children a woman has, then the more aged she looks, more quickly she looks aged, right? She didn't have any children at all. So that's number no, two. And I think that, uh, and then in other cases, God so endows some women with beauty that it, it's amazingly it lasts, even if they do have children, and they live to be 65 or 70, 75, they do in some ways maintain that beauty almost until they die, yeah. right? It does happen in some cases. So 
we may say that any one of these or all three of these may have been the case with Sarah. We do know that she was barren, so she didn't have bear any children yet. Um, verses 12 and following, they present to us uh, a divergence in what I had just said in the previous segment about Abraham's faith. At this point, this is where if any interpreter is going to impugn the faith of Abraham, this is where they will do it. This is one place. Actually, he does this twice. He does it also in Genesis 20 when he's about to go to the land of Philistia. He says to Sarah to do the same thing here. So he, he does this twice. That is to tell something that's not true about his wife. At least the untrue part of it is what he wants his hearers to believe. Because in Abraham's case, it's a partial truth because she was his half-sister. Okay, so there is an element of untruth or falsehood that he wants the hearers to believe in order to protect his life. It's at this place that interpreters say that he sorely lacked faith and he jeopardized his wife. Now, I grant that this is a very common interpretation and that there are many godly interpreters who come to that conclusion. I grant that. So that is a valid approach to this passage. However, I don't take that approach. And I can tell you briefly why I don't take it, and then during the question and answer time, we can explore it some more. Okay? My brief um, example as to why I don't think he is sinning has to do with a, a few reasons. One, the passage itself does not condemn Abraham. That is, the Spirit of God writing by the hand of Moses, does not actually say, and Abram did evil in the sight of the Lord, or any such statement. It doesn't say anything like that. That's number one. Number two, an oracle does not get recorded here from God. A word from God does not re get recorded that says, thus it, the Lord said to Abram, you did evil by doing this. Nothing like that is there. Further, in chapter 20... Genesis chapter 20, when this happens for the second time, um, God also intervenes and makes sure that Sarah is not violated. Right. And when he does so, God tells the king the following. Verse 7, 20 verse 7. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. Restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. God confronts Abimelech and stops him from sinning, but he does not confront Abraham and tell him that he did sin. In fact, he just says to Abimelech, he's a prophet, and prophets are righteous, and this righteous prophet will pray for you, and there will be a restoration in your household. That's what's said. So God could have confronted Abraham there, and he didn't. He confronted Abimelech and told Abraham, who had not sinned, presumably, to pray for Abimelech so that Abraham's prayer would be answered, and Abimelech's household restored. So... Um, these are a few reasons why I think Abraham can't
can be exonerated in what he does here. Now, one more example. Remember in Exodus chapter 1, 15 to 22, Exodus 1, 15 to 22, the midwives of the Hebrew women, they told Pharaoh, Pharaoh who wanted them to murder the baby boys, the newborn baby boys, he wanted them to murder them by throwing them into the Nile River. When the Pharaoh discovered that that was not being done, he confronted the midwives, and what did the midwives say? He said, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth to them before we can get to them. Now, Pharaoh, being a man and doesn't, is clueless, right? He's an official. He's the king of the land. He's clueless, so he believes what they say. He doesn't confront them and, and bother them. And then it says, so God blessed the midwives and established households for them. After they make that statement to Pharaoh, the text then says, so, or therefore, thus, God blessed the midwives and established households for them. So, what is the principle at work? I believe the principle at work is that if we need to say or do what we need to say or do in order to protect innocent human life, then God does not consider it a sin or lack of faith. To protect innocent human life. Of course, the newborn babies were innocent humans. Innocent meaning they had no actual sin. They did not commit a crime worthy of death, those midwives. And even in Abraham's case, he would not have been guilty of any crime worthy of death if the Egyptians would have desired to put him to death. So he wanted to spare his life. And one more comment about Abraham. Abraham knew that the word was given to him, so the word of the promise of Christ. So his life, he knew at least that, that his life needed to be preserved. And that Sarah's life was not going to be terminated, but his life might be. So he acted in accordance with that. His life needed to be preserved for Christ to be born as one of his descendants. Now back to chapter 12. Chapter 12 and verse 12. 12, 12. And it will come about when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Which is true. This could have well happened. In order to obtain a beautiful woman, you have to kill or murder the husband to obtain. They at least had the belief that it's wrong to commit adultery. But it was all right to, all, all right to murder, to kill. <laughs> That's what they believe. Now, you, we might laugh at that, which is fine, but people have these kinds of contradictions in their mind all the time. There are societies that have these kinds of contradictions all the time. They, they might say, stealing and lying is fine, but adultery and murder is not fine. Or they'll say, murder and adultery is fine, but don't you steal my possessions, or I'll come and get you. Right? Sure. See, that there's contradictions all the time in, oh, yeah. in our society. And this is what Abraham sees here. They will kill me and let you live. We should not think that Abraham was foolish and rash and even full of evil suspicion. We should not be, according to 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, to 
We should not be full of evil suspicion when we come across people, right? But it also doesn't mean we should be gullible and simpletons. We should not be gullible and simpletons. In Abraham's case, was he right? Yes, because it says in 15... Uh, 14, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. It did happen. So it, it wasn't evil suspicion. His discernment knew that that could well happen. And it did. It did happen. And notice also 15. Well, one commentator points this out that the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. Isn't it true? It's often the case in every situation, whether we're talking about in the church or outside the church, in business or in government, wherever we go, isn't it true that subordinates so want to please their superiors that they'll flatter them and they'll do whatever it takes even beyond the, the bounds of propriety and ethics in order to please their superiors? No doubt. Now, we should be pleasing and obeying our superiors, correct? correct? We should never be accused of, of insubordination or anything like that. We should never do that. But there's a difference between obeying our superiors and flattering them. Yeah. Isn't that what they're doing here? The officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, the more wives you have, Pharaoh, isn't it the better? So they bring more and more women. They find the women and they bring them and suggest them to him. Here also it says, and she was taken into Pharaoh's house. Was taken. We'll, I think another way to explain what is happening here, taken into Pharaoh's house, we can see from the implications of this passage that Sarah was not violated by Pharaoh. Right. Because there was um, a plague that struck them, and that alerted them to the fact that something is amiss here. Okay? So we gather that she was not violated here. We do know in, in Act, uh, Genesis 20, she was not violated, because there in this dialogue between God and Abimelech, it's very clear that Abimelech had not yet approached Sarah. Okay? So that had not happened. God stopped it. Now, why could that happen or why would that happen that even though she was taken to be his wife, to be Pharaoh's wife, that they had not yet come together? How is that possible? Because we think the moment you, you are taken as wife in the wedding, then the wedding night, then you are husband and wife in that physical way, right? But that's not the way it always works. Right. Not in courts, not in, uh, um, in kingdoms where there are kings and um, proper procedures among the servants and the officials. Why do I say that? <clears throat> Let's turn to Esther. Esther, the book of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Esther chapter 2. You remember that in Persia, there, there was a desire to replace the queen and the king, King Ahasuerus, he calls on his officials to go and find women throughout the empire in order to have one of them to be the wife of the king and to be the queen. 
Remember, let's, let's read the passage and see what it says. Esther 2, verse 8. We'll gather from here that there was time before the king and his wife actually came together in marital relations. That's the example we're going to see. Esther 2, verse 8. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to Susa the capital into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her and well, with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. And every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into the king, to King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months, under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her, as his daughter came to go in to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. There's, there's a process, 12 months process. Yeah. <clears throat> we don't know what was in Abraham's mind, but presumably he thought that in this length of time, he's hoping and praying that there will be deliverance for his wife. It's not as though he is such a callous and cold man that he doesn't care for his own wife. I doubt that that is the case with Abraham. I, I believe he knew that there would be this intermediate period and he was going to find a way or pray for a way for there to be deliverance. And being a prophet of God and a man of God, perhaps his prayer was answered because it says in verse 17, Genesis 12, 17, but the Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Uh, let's back up to verse 16. Therefore he, Pharaoh, treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. He thinks Abraham is the full brother of, and not the, the husband of Sarah. So he's treating Abraham well, which means he's not seizing upon Sarah and treating her like a prostitute. He's not doing that. The king is not doing that. He's showing some level of respect because it says he treated Abram well for her sake. He's treating Abraham well, and it's likely he's also treating Sarah well. He's not abusing and, and misusing her. He's not treating her like a prostitute. He's not raping her. He's not doing anything like that because of Abraham. 
He knows Abraham, though he's not a king, he's still a powerful, wealthy, influential man who has come to reside in his country temporarily. So he's treating him well. That also would be by the grace of God, that God moves in the spirit of Pharaoh to treat Abraham and Sarah well. However, he did take her, and that has to be stopped. Verse 17, But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why do you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. So, the plague causes Pharaoh. We don't know how exactly he knew that there was a connection between the plague and Sarah. We don't know. But he did know. He did know that there was a connection. If we compare to... Genesis chapter 20, God intervened with an oracle to the king in chapter 20 and told him, this is what actually is happening. So stop it. So it may be that God revealed his word to Pharaoh and told him that the reason for these plagues has to do with Sarah. So give her back to Abraham. Abraham is actually the husband of Sarah. Do not commit adultery. In verses 18 and 19, we know, just like in Chapter 20, we know that Pharaoh, just like the king of the Philistines, they both did this innocently, meaning ignorantly. They were not intentionally trying to commit adultery. They were not intentionally trying to commit adultery. Which teaches us that we may commit sin without knowing it. It is possible for us to commit sin without knowing it. Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5, in the law of Moses, it made provision for this fact. Leviticus 5.17. Leviticus 5.17. Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring to the priest the ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it shall be forgiven him. For it is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. Certainly guilty before the Lord. Therefore, what's the solution to sinning unawares. Study. Study Study the Word of God. Know the Word of God so you can know what God thinks about every single thing. Every decision you make every day, submit to God. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Meditate on His Word day and night. Psalm 1. And thereby, we know, we can know, whether we sin intentionally or unintentionally, knowingly or unknowingly, sin by commission or omission, whatever they may be, however we describe our sins, let's present it all to God and say, God, forgive me and also prevent me. Forgive me for doing it in all those ways, but also prevent me from sinning in all those ways. And by prayer and by the word of God, we may overcome. And prayer is, of course, pleading with God to give us 
the power of his Holy Spirit to know his will and do his will. Then finally, verse 20. Verse 20, And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. In this way, Pharaoh guarantees that he is guiltless, and Abraham is, and his belongings, all of his people, are also protected. So he protects himself, Pharaoh does, and he protects Abraham, and makes sure Abraham is escorted out of his country without any problems whatsoever. He's sending him away in peace, without afflicting him, without tormenting him, without seizing any of his possessions, not doing anything like that, and making sure nobody has any guilt as Abraham leaves. This is good that God caused this to happen in Pharaoh's mind for Pharaoh to order for this to happen. Now, why do I say God caused all this? Uh, There are many examples we could give. Proverbs 21.1 is one. Um, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he wishes. He turns it wherever he wishes. Another example is 2 Chronicles 36, 22 and 23, which says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he issued a proclamation. The pagan, unbelieving king of Persia, the Lord stirred up his spirit so that he issued a proclamation to deliver the Judeans out of his his, um, kingdom, out of the area of his kingdom to go back to their homeland, to Israel or Canaan. God is the one who caused that to happen. And I believe that's what God's causing here. Which should remind us, remember what happened when the nation of Israel was delivered from Egypt in Exodus 12? In Exodus 12... God had promised this a couple of times earlier in Exodus, but in chapter 12, it actually does happen. That when they left Egypt, God made ample provision for them. Exodus 12, 35. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. When they were sent out, they were liberated, freed from Egypt, from their slavery, and and about to go into the wilderness for Canaan. It says, The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let let them have their request. That's the movement of God in the Egyptians to give the people of God these possessions. This is an example, an illustration, a token of what God does for us spiritually. Mm-hmm. For we see in Romans 8, Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And 2 Corinthians four fifteen, the apostle says, all things are for us. Yeah. All things are for us so that we may abound in giving thanks to the glory of God. God gives all things. He created the world for us to give thanks to Him and to glorify Him. So we benefit and God is glorified. That's what He did with Abraham. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.